Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Services has recognized both human trafficking and opioid addiction as major health issues, which are creating a dangerous intersection for citizens as well as the justice system resources. Thanks for joining Imagine Publicity on Air. We're partnering with the FBI Citizens Academy to bring you a three-part series on the opioid crisis from three different perspectives, the addict, the law, and legislation. Also discussed will be the intersection of the opioid crisis and how it relates to another crisis, human trafficking. I'm Delilah Jones. I'm the host of Imagine Publicity on Air. But for this very important three-part series, I'm tossing the hosting reins to Jillian Moss-Backman, who hosts her own podcast, Change Already. Jillian is an award-winning former FM radio host, author, and authority in leadership development and intuitive intelligence. Her clients include high-profile professionals, educational institutions, and businesses nationwide. You can learn more about her at JillianMossBackman.com. Thanks, Jillian, for stepping in for this important event and recognizing the critical need for correct information to be presented to the public. How are you today? Well, pretty good. I'm somewhat sad that we have to do an entire three-part series on it, but as you mentioned, I think it's extremely important that we take all this information that's out there, and you see it in the news every day, Delilah, people dying, families being affected, and I think it's an important series that needs to be done for those of us that don't quite understand it all and take it down to bits and pieces and possibly even get involved through the academy and other ways in your own community. So thank you for letting me be a part of Imagine Publicity on air. This last hour, the last hour we had before this, we talked about the opioid crisis and how it affects relationships. I was really touched by the mother that came on air and was talking about her son who has a history now of opioid addiction and specifically heroin. And please take time to go listen to that when you can at imaginepublicity.com or YouTube or anything else. There's other places. It was gut-wrenching to hear that mother when she said she had to turn in her own child because it was out of control and she knew that it was at a life-and-death crisis. What does it take for us to get this under control. So today I want to take it down to more myopic kind of conversation, the individual, the actual opioid user, and how it affects all aspects of the criminal system. I want to talk this hour to Timothy Clay Culp. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He certainly has a vitae that tells us that he knows what he's talking about. He's from Charleston, South Carolina, and he is a South Carolinian. I'm learning those are really a proud moment in a person's life. He's had 33 years of experience in all aspects of the law. He was a special agent for the FBI. He's a former prosecutor. He was a municipal judge. He's a member of the FBI Citizens Academy. 
And for our purposes today, I want to talk to him through his voice of a criminal defense attorney. Welcome, Timothy. Thank you. Good morning. I'm not really sure where to start in all of this. Can you give us a perspective of how things have changed in your ideas and thoughts of defending the opioid user and how it has affected the overall criminal system, criminal defense system that we have? Sure. Um, You're right. I've been doing this for a long time and feel like I've worn all the various hats in the criminal courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Of participants. But um, probably not a, a, a recent uh, factor, but probably within 15 years or so ago, um, I noticed there were more cases coming into my firm dealing with things like forged prescriptions, uh, doctor shopping, so so forth, and 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 people were being arrested for that, uh, and so that was a new area in terms of defending those individuals. Uh, charged with controlled substance offenses criminally because those these drugs these meth, means and methods of getting these drugs uh, were not used or employed to obtain recreational drugs but what I was seeing was an entirely different class of client um, these people were ordinary people and the frequency of these types of clients coming in the office has increased from back then to now. And generally the tragedy of it was that in many cases, um, these individuals underwent some sort of surgical procedure um, or experienced some sort of chronic pain and were legally prescribed opioids from the start of treatment or post-surgery and as a substance that is physically addictive, we're not either warned about the danger of the drug or we're over-prescribed quantities of the drug uh, or not followed up or monitored and led to a regular person, Joe Sixpack, Susie Soccer Mom, and even down to high school students injured in sports, uh, becoming obsessed with and addicted to a substance they had to find a way to get that led them to situations where they were uh, uh, arrested and charged uh, with associated crimes. You know, that's interesting because when I think of this crisis, and I'll be honest with you, I only know bits and pieces of it, but I'm slowly starting to hear it every day, Timothy. You only hear celebrities. And, you know, you talk this doctor shopping for regular common people like myself. I call myself a commoner. But, you know, what does that mean? So when I think of this whole crisis, I think of celebrities going out and doing what you said, but you're saying it's just, right down in our communities where we live, normal people doing abnormal things to get this drug. Absolutely. Every day. Because, um, and, you know, I remember uh, you have to look at the drug itself. While all many drugs are addictive, and there's a current debate about whether or not marijuana is, but uh, there, it is unequivocal that opioids are addictive physically and then mentally or psychologically. And so, you know, we had a young man in recently who had a soccer injury in high school and was prescribed, had surgery, was prescribed drugs. And, and, and it's, it's kind of the perfect storm for many of these people because for this kid's case, this young man, uh, his injury took him out of the sport he loved. And yes, the surgery was painful and recovery was slow and painful. And he was given these drugs to make it better and assuage the pain. Well, the problem was he was kind of prone to be a bit depressed and so forth anyway, not being able to burn up all that energy as an adolescent playing a sport. 
And he started taking the meds, and then he started taking more of them. And the reason he did is because opioids have an aspect, uh, a, de- a deadly and, and devilish aspect of, uh, you know, the um, uh, tolerance. Um, you know, I have had clients tell me who are charged with opioid offenses that, well, you know, Mr. Culp, uh, I have to have 15 Vicodin a day. Gosh, that oh, amount God. of drugs, that amount of drugs would kill you. I, it doesn't kill me because I have built up a physical tolerance, and that is my, quote, thera- therapeutic level. And when I wake up in the morning, he said, I don't take these to get high. When I wake up in the morning, he said, imagine your worst flu and your worst college graduation party hangover the morning after. That's how I feel every morning when I wake up. And if I don't take that quantity of drugs in my ever-increasing tolerance, um, whatever the therapeutic level is and it's growing, I don't get back to feel normal. Now, and it it isn't just Hollywood celebrities and so forth. Uh, You know, our state, uh, and I don't don't want to get into legislation, but apparently – due to some of our legislators in South Carolina recognizing the extent of the problem and the scope of it and the different tiers of citizens and types of citizens that it affects have instituted a law last year that, that prohibits prescription of opioids uh, for more than seven days at an initial prescription, unless it is clearly a case of palliative care, chronic pain or other uh, definitions. Um, you know, it, it, and then when you have OxyContin coming to play, and I have to mention this, part of the driving force, you ha- the model is someone is a regular citizen, and they have a surgery or an injury, and they are prescribed dutifully by their physician opioids to recover because that's all that will touch the pain and, and make it go away. And then the person isn't properly followed up or just becomes dependent upon the drug. The doctor then decides when they come back for the third time, well, you should be out of pain now. I'm not going to write you another script. Well, that's a problem. How are they going to get the drugs they have to have? Well, they hit the street, and they find a way or a fellow student or a housewife friend down the street or a guy – a fellow's playing golf with, hey, you know, you know, I'm still hurting from that knee. How you doing? You got any? And the people who are prescribed the drugs um, that don't take them all hold on to them for some reason, and uh, there's a cache of those out there. So anyway, so a market has opened up on the street for top dollar um, uh, profits to come from the street sale of the drugs. Now, I saw an article – Recently, and I'm trying to find it here on the desk, but uh, yeah, here you go. The sixth largest American drug firm sent more than 3 million opioid prescriptions to West Virginia town, a West Virginia town with population of 400 in 10 months. Oh, gosh. I, I don't there even know what to for that. Well, here's what happened. Well, <laughs> You think of the scenario and the, and, and the course of, of, of this not scheme, but I guess it is. You have doctors who are paid, some doctors who are paid to receive some benefits to prescribe drugs that pharmaceutical salesmen suggest to them they should be subscribing, prescribing. They prescribe the drugs, and once this prescription is written, it has to be filled somewhere. So it's taken to a pharmacy. And, and filled. So you'd kind of think that in this small town of 400 people, that doctors, however many are there, would realize that um, it's kind of a problem. And then the pharmacies would, if they see people show up every three days with a script, it, the problem is it's money, and everybody's making money off of it. Purdue made a fortune off of OxyContin. And, you know, I had a case one time that involved a pill mill in Myrtle Beach, of all places. 
and it was a um, a clinic for pain, and several doctors worked there and support staff. And this was about, I want to say, 10, 12, 15 years ago. But there were people lined up down the sidewalk waiting to get in there to get a prescription oh, for OxyContin. Oh, my gosh. And it was alleged that the what the physicians would do would they would see so many patients that they, they would do things like order nuclear studies and MRI or whatever and then write a prescription for oxycontin for 60 days without ever seeing the results of the MRI read and when people would come out with a prescription they would be doing high fives and so forth discussing which pharmacy to go to where they wouldn't receive any resistance on a fill and uh and the reason was, it, you know, it was, it was the design of the pill with a baffled design for, a, you know, a delayed uh, deployment uh, as a uh, controlled substance addressing pain was found out through people's creativity to, if you crush it up or bite it or whatever, you get an instant opioid high. And at the time, I was defending that case, and one of the doctors, my neighbor then, a very nice fellow, was a radiological oncologist. And one day I was speaking with him about it and telling him what was going on. And he said, well, if they want to take OxyContin off the market, I'll go to Congress and appear and testify. He said there has never been a more effective drug for, for the treatment of palliative care patients, burn victims, cancer patients. He said it stops them grunting for 12 hours. So Purdue started out with pharmaceutically a great product, which on the street was found to be um, uh, uh, the design was the problem, at least in that respect. And so people, it was so such a good high for them. Uh, they quickly, of course, became addicted in terms of the tolerance issue. They had to have more and more and more, and then a market developed. And uh, and today, though, the real the real problem is that I hear is that all the way down to the junior high level, no kidding. And I'm not one to uh, you know to uh, you know cry wolf in a sense, but the heroin dealers have realized the difficulty for these regular, normal, ordinary people to get continue, a continued supply of pharmaceutical opioids, and they have moved in, and those who can't get OxyContin, Lortab, Lorset, Percocet, whatever, who have to have it, who would never, ever, prior to becoming addicted to opioids, consider going within a mile of heroin are buying it, they're smoking it, they're snorting it, and they're shooting it. As a criminal... I have two sons. Yeah. I have two sons. I'll say very quickly as a closing mark on this point. We have had four of their friends die from overdoses. Lacrosse players, soccer friends, Ordinary, or I can't stress it enough, ordinary people, whose, as you said regarding the prior segment, whose families have been tortured and broken yeah. up by something they can't control. So we've seen it firsthand. We've been to the funerals. It's just gut-wrenching, and I don't think it's going to go away on its own very easily. As a criminal defense attorney, how – have you had to adjust your defending a high school student who has been a good kid, done what he's supposed to do, accidentally had this injury, got himself in this quagmire of opiate addiction? How in the world are you supposed to defend a child like that or people in his same situation that are good citizens in the court system now, certainly you have changed your way of defending these people when you, they're not criminals. No, and, and, and you know, we had a debate, um, probably an email debate on a listserv a few years back among criminal defense lawyers about 
whether criminal defense lawyers defending a client, including those sorts of clients, whether a criminal defense lawyer has an ethical duty to also see that the person, not just defending them, but to assist them and help them if they were in need as a result of alcohol dependency or opioid dependency to, to assist in getting them help. And the overall conclusion was, well, sure. I mean, you're, you're representing the interest of the client, and if he continues to use, he's going to get in trouble again, and it's going to be right. more perilous for him. You know, but right. so when clients come in like that, one, it's heartbreaking. Um, yeah. And I they always imagine. come in as a family, and they don't know what to do. Um, I, had one, I had one guy come in. Oh, it was so bad. One, one kid come in, and uh, he was caught selling on three occasions. And his father flew down from Virginia, came in with me. And the first interview I did with him, I have a system, an approach. I went down a list. I'd gotten him out on bond and, and had a list of substances, street and otherwise, that I go down like a checklist. I, I think he said he was taking all of them at one time or another. I could barely communicate with him. So his, oh, the first, to answer your question, the first thing we do is we got to get control of the client. He can't participate in his own defense if he's on planet Zulu, you know. So we sent him in for 30 days um, inpatient treatment. He came back, and I defended him. And the way I went about it was, in accordance with your question, was pitching to the prosecutor, look, this guy got here for this reason. He was a user. While he made three sales, well, we, t- we, we approach dealers differently. I said, he's not a dealer. It was small amounts, and he was addicted to everything under the sun. And I said, we have to treat him differently. He's a young guy. Right. If he gets a conviction yeah. for this, he's toast. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? I'm sorry, I had to shift over to my phone. My earplugs died. But okay. so what happened was the prosecutor didn't want to put him in the drug court because he was a dealer. So right. my shift goes from uh, analyzing the case, looking for uh, legal issues that would apply in his defense, preparing for trial and so forth, to doing everything I can to convince the prosecutor. And it was hours of work to convince the prosecutor to put him in the drug court. After a long period of time, the prosecutor relented, and he was placed in drug court for a year-long program every Wednesday. Well, he graduated, and he was the star graduate. I went over to his graduation in the the courtroom where they had drug court, and it was a tearful moment. And he was invited to come back to help other people. Well, he got out and got a job in a restaurant here in Charleston and uh, became a waiter. And he's so successful – it's just a great story. He ended up getting married to a young woman who was a single mom. Uh, every time I'm in the restaurant, it's a high-end restaurant, so we go maybe once a year with friends, visiting or whatever, I find him and hug him and introduce him to everybody at the table. Not how I know him, but the fellow. And so, that was about eight years ago. To this day, he's doing uh-huh. wonderful. So, so the approach, as you said, has to be different. Um, yeah, it does. It really does. And the question I have as a follow-up to that is, it sounds like your job now as a criminal defense attorney has shifted to therapist, uh, guidance counselor, (laughs) criminal defense attorney, and there are success stories here. So even though it Mm -hmm. sounds like a crisis, from your point of view, there are success stories. You can break this cycle. Well, you can. It's more difficult with opioids um, um, than other substances that people possess and find themselves in my office for possessing. But, um, but you know, it, it, it requires a different approach. I mean, we're still looking – investigating, you know, checking credibility of witnesses, uh, uh, looking for applicable law, search and seizure issues, and so forth. But right. what, good does, what good does it do to get a good result for someone in a criminal case if they're, I mean, I, 
fortunately, our practice has been successful enough, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, where I don't have to depend upon recidivism, you know, to, to, to be successful. And I don't want to see him again. If I help someone and get a good result in their case, I'm happy to never see him again unless it's, uh, you know, at a, at a grocery store. Uh, but Restaurant. the problem is the opioid problem is growing, and it, it, it reminds me of as a, as a kid a movie that was so scary called The Blob. And it was a science fiction movie where the blob just this goo just ran around neighborhoods, just consuming people. And this is kind of the same because uh, the drugs don't I mean, they don't care who um, whose lives they ruin. I mean, uh, and, you know, for people who are who steal the drugs or somehow acquire them, I told some state police guys one time, I said, this is the best drug to deal on the street without risk they said why i said because you're dealing your customers are ordinary people if you're on a street corner talking to them they're wearing regular clothes they're they they've shaved or they they look like regular people two they're so addicted they buy in quantity three they're so desperate they'll pay cash because they don't want any financial transaction traced to them and and uh, uh, and four, they're going to be coming back. And another factor is they're not the type of client who's going to get arrested for some other offense where they'll be in a vice and have to disclose or give you up. In other words, they're not going to get arrested for housebreaking and the heat's on. And in, if they decide to cooperate, the police to go, oh, by the way, yeah, this Tim Culp guy just sold me 500 Lortab the other day. Here's where he lives. So, so it's the perfect drug to sell for profit on the street. And, you know, a lot of documentaries have addressed this. Hillbilly heroin in the Appalachian area, uh, South Florida and Fort Lauderdale, where they had pain clinics, where they would actually have a dispensary or a pharmacy in the doctor's office. I mean, and these are old documentaries and, and, and reviews. This, this is not a new story. And the fact that it's so horrible and that it's ever-growing uh, has, has been out there for a long time. And I think what it's going to take is for there to be legislation like the, the amendment of our law that South Carolina passed last summer. I mean, what else is going to do it? The pro- the, you have to hit it where the profit is and – and, and a host of other approaches, like I said, early identification of people with problems and immediate, effective, oftentimes inpatient treatment, and education as well. Um, you know, I think that prescribing physicians need to be – and here's a problem I noticed back during the Myrtle Beach Pain Clinic case. Uh, DEA said the compliance division, which deals with pharmaceuticals, said we're going to shut Purdue down. Well, wishful thinking, too big. But they they communicated, yeah, they communicated to physicians uh, their approach to OxyContin. So physicians got scared, and they stopped prescribing OxyContin as they were, and they were and they turned to prescribing lower level opioids like uh, Lortab, uh, Percocet, and so forth, as if it was you know Tylenol with codeine, and it was okay because it wasn't OxyContin. They identified the devil. They weren't going near it, and everything else was okay. Um, and and that created a, a problem, you know, as well that was difficult to deal with. Um, but it's um, it has to be addressed. It, it's you know the, the horror is from a lawyer's perspective, and I'm not disparaging clients, other clients who may not fit this this uh, model, but uh, or image, but. You know, when a whole family comes in with a young person or a whole family comes in with a housewife, uh, and why, okay, you got arrested? Oh, well, I, I grabbed some prescription, a pad from the doctor, and I forged prescriptions and uh, went to four or five pharmacies and got them filled, and they caught me, and I got arrested. You ever arrested before? Nope. Nope. I got a speeding ticket 10 years ago. Well, that doesn't count. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to figure out what to do. The family's destroyed. 
It sure is. And I'm listening to your story, and it sounds like it's this really thick, underground, citrical thing between big farm and, you know, celebrities and and families, and it just goes down the line to doctors. You have to see a secondary crime repercussion coming out of this because, like you're talking about, these people are addicted. They got to get it somehow. And what kind of things, specifically sex trafficking, is in the news everywhere nowadays? from celebrities down again to normal people. Timothy, do you see that kind of intersection that's happening now because we've got this crisis and where are they going to find the money to fund it other than selling it on the streets and specifically to human trafficking? Um, What are you seeing on that platform? Well, um, Jillian, it'd be interesting to see. I don't know if there are statistics available, but among the number of prostitutes who are arrested for either solicitation for prostitution or actual prostitution or whatever, the percentage of those who are addicted to any drug, uh, but more than likely heroin, uh, opioids, or whatever, I would venture to guess that at least a majority and probably, um, I don't know, well more than a majority are. And and we see this locally. Uh, I've had several cases where uh, part of the file or case that comes to me involves uh, prostitutes who are addicted to drugs, who carry needles in their purse, who answer calls off Backpage.com, uh, who undoubtedly are not uh, soloing the whole venture and working with someone who helps get them drugs to um, to meet uh, you know to uh, to to, uh, to meet their habit and their needs, and then requires them to part of the whole deal is to um, sell themselves for sex, and it's and it's a horrible circle because they can't get out of it. And, you know, some people think of sex trafficking in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, the, the capture of, uh, of a group right. of young women and, and being sold. Or but men. No, no, no. Or young. Or, or men or anyone. But, the, yep. but these, poor, these I see these women, and, and it's a revolving door because they're working an interesting uh, two-theater approach. One is they're working with the guys who get the business for them. Who provide them drugs, and then when they get busted, they're working with the dedicated narcotics officers, uh, and they they act as informants and provide information about others to get out of the charges. They get them back on the street, to get them back in the motel, to get them back to the drugs, to get them busted again, to cooperate and inform again, to get out, to go back on the street, to go back to the motel. I mean, that is a, just a, a huge issue. Huge issue, you know, um, and, and oftentimes the the uh, the prostitutes uh, or the sex workers' addiction exists before they start that cycle. They may come into the cycle with an addiction, which is all the better for those who are profiting from it. But um, there's a definite link there. I, I you know, I I don't think you know the old days, and I say this um, carefully, but um you know the old days of the red light district and so forth um in the 1900s or way back uh, you know maybe the maybe those sex workers then were were alcoholics i don't know but there was some ability to keep them there uh maybe beyond just the little profits that they made but now um you know the the lock on the door for those sex workers is not a, a chain and a padlock that keeps them there. It's the addiction. Wow. And it sounds like it's just almost impossible, Timothy, once these young girls and young boys 
are under that influence to get them out. And, you know, then they go recruit other friends. That's the scary part. They're out in parties with other kids. They're out in, you know, uh, establishments where young kids go. And opioid addiction is what brings them in first. So they are under this um, addictive spell, let's say, and it just keeps going on. It sounds like there's just, to be quite frank with you, a lot of money to be made in all of that. Tons of money. And you're right. Who do they turn to other than others they might, um, they might uh, form an alliance with, whatever? Do they go for treatment? No. They don't go for treatment because they can't afford it. They don't think they can afford it. Or they fear that they can be turned over to the police, and they'll go to jail. And if, in jail, you can get drugs, but it's not as easy, easily done as it is on the street. So who do they turn to? They look at themselves as being absolutely trapped with no way out. And the fuel is the drug and the needle for those who are making the profits. Sex workers aren't making any profits, just getting by. It's a horrific story. And, you know, I have recently moved over to South Carolina, and I'm a Midwest girl. And to be mm-hmm. honest with you, I had only heard about the opioid uh, crisis, you know, in the news, in the bigger cities, because I worked in Chicago. And But the human trafficking, holy cow, I didn't really understand it till I got over on the coast. Do you think it's more prevalent in South Carolina, North Carolina, up and down the coast because of the coast? I'm confused on why that is so prevalent over here versus where I'm from, the Midwest. Well, I can't say that... um, um, I haven't seen any information to suggest that it's regionalized. Uh, I have okay. no basis to, to, to suggest that. But I do know that, you know, the, the, the business model is the bigger the city, the more people who are attracted there, either by tourism um, or uh, other draws, um, um, the greater likelihood is for a more successful business, both for those who are trafficking sex workers and the sex workers themselves. You know, if and in, in, uh, you know somewhere in the Midwest in a, a town population fifteen thousand, don't bother. I mean, that's just not going to be worth the effort. But in heavily populated areas, that go ahead, go ahead please. Sorry. Do I'm you good. think it's because it's such a transient community? When I mean transient, people coming in <clears> and out from all over. You know, the Midwest kids, the New York kids, the Southern kids. Do you think it's because they it's such a fluid of people coming in and out that they start with that opioid addiction maybe from their hometowns, they come into these cities, and somehow they get trapped in this horrific loop and they can't get out? I mean, I've heard stories about that. Do you think that's part of the issue? Well, it has to be. Um, it has to be. Um, I, I think that's one of the dynamics of, of the problem. Um, you know, the the transient na- nature of larger cities uh, yeah. and those cities that have a tourism draw uh, is both going to draw um, young people or those who are, um, you know, who are, who have an interest in uh, getting away from their home. And you also have people uh, who are potential uh, clients who are coming and going um, and go to that area potentially specifically for that purpose, like some of the people we see arrested going all the way to Thailand from America, you know, but, but I think that uh, it's the big city con, you know, uh, notion and, and that both draws the workers and, those who make the business profitable. As a criminal defense attorney, how do you think we're going to get out of this? I mean, South Carolina is always going to be a tourist place. North Carolina is always going to be a tourist place. There's always going to be an opioid crisis. 
from your perspective as a criminal attorney, do you have any thoughts of where we can go? And I know that you're a part of the FBI, um, the class and everything else. What are your thoughts on how in the world are we going to, I don't think we're ever going to stop it, Timothy, but how can we educate and at least give somebody a chance to get out of it? Um, you know, it, 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 there's so many issues that law enforcement has to, must address these days. Um, my experience has been in terms of the enforcement of prostitution, that it's almost a, um, a cyclic kind of thing um, mm-hmm. that, that every now and then they'll have a big roundup, but I don't know that there's a consistent effort or that resources are provided to those officers, detectives and so forth to, to campaign against that, uh, that area on a regular basis as well the officers themselves may uh, feel that they're hamstrung by virtue of the fact that if someone is picked up uh, soliciting for prostitution, you know, a John or a prostitute is charged and both of them are arrested, um, you know, I mean, what's the penalty? Well, one, uh, the John's going to be embarrassed because due to the advent of these web, mugshot.com websites <clears throat> and so forth, his space is going to be all over a website or a publication at a 7-Eleven, <clears throat> you'll have to deal with that. But the fine he's looking at might be a couple hundred dollars, if that. Uh, and for the prostitute, the bond's going to be low. It's going to be either PR bond, uh, own recognizance bond, where you pay the money to get out. And the worst case scenario that she or he as a sex worker is looking at is going to be potentially the payment of a few hundred dollar fine, probably on a time payment. So, uh, and no one is interested that I've ever heard of in uh, toughening up those laws. Um, I don't think those who are in a position to toughen up the laws necessarily are aware of that connection that you've identified and that we've been discussing between drug addiction and sex working sufficiently enough to say, we need to start discussing how to deal with this and is one of the ways uh, strengthening uh, the the uh, the punishment for convictions for these offenses? I don't know, but um, it's it, it's I think that any approach to it is is going to have to be must be multifaceted. It's going to have to deal with education uh, from the doctor level uh, down to the student level to the community level. Um, uh, it's going to take uh, early identification of those who are addicted and serious, appropriate treatment and funds for that available. Uh, it's going to take um, just a whole nother approach. And so the question is how in many arenas of social interest and concern, how bad does it have to get? You know, do what's the number? Do we have to have the stats go up where, a uh, hundred young people, uh, uh, you know, a week are are dying from overdosing. Does it have to be five hundred? Does it have to be a thousand? You know, what's yeah, the what's point? the tipping point? Right, I hear. Yeah, what you're when is it going to get so that. bad that pe- people are forced to say, "Well, okay, we need to address this." Well, who knows? But it certainly warrants additional attention and intervention and action. No doubt about it. Well, I think a lot of people and legislation have been trying to get through things, but when the last lady that was on the hour before you tells us that 10 people died in the Myrtle Beach area since January, at what point is it going to be a crisis? And it sounds like, unfortunately, the bottom line here, Timothy, is money, money money to be made and as a criminal just i mean a criminal defense attorney how do you not get frustrated and annoyed and darn right angry because it sounds like you're at the bottom of the, the heat 
you're the one that has to take care of the client that comes in and has this issue, and it has very little to do with what you're doing. How do you not get frustrated with that? Well, it is frustrating. I'd much rather uh, be preparing for and taking to trial a very complex and intriguing murder defense, which I've done on over the years in death penalty cases yeah. and otherwise. Yikes. That, that, that's okay. a lot. That's a okay. lot more. That's a lot more lawyering. A lot okay. more lawyering yeah. than than you know. And I'm worse this when these kind of cases come in. I, you know, closes the client, the family leaves, and I think, gee, they ought to add another year on to law school and clinical psychology and addiction treatment. You know, um, because oftentimes you feel like you're wearing a um, you know a hat that you it's not necessarily. A lawyer's hat is one of social worker, uh, interventionist, a mm-hmm. uh, whole host of things. But, you know, um, that's part of zealous representation, in my opinion. But it is a different approach. And not having at least uh, sheepskin on the wall for those types of uh, additional talents, uh, it can be very frustrating because um, you do the best you can. And then oftentimes when it's so bad, you know, you experience is not the does not teach has not taught you enough to be effective. You refer someone out to a forensic psychologist or a drug addiction expert, uh, and so forth. Sure, but no, it's it's not. It, it's a lot different than okay. Um, where were you at 6:44 p.m. that day, and who was with you? And and forensics, which I love, uh, you know, review and consideration and. Uh, analysis of forensic evidence in a case. No, it's a lot different. It really is. You know, when you and I were growing up, it was don't do marijuana, right? Don't do drugs. Right. Don't don't do marijuana. And nowadays, we've kind of folded back that issue, and it looks like this next really harsh layer is where we need to go on education and disbursement, and it sounds like you're telling me that it's hitting the kids. So I know that there's that video called Chasing the Dragon that everyone should be putting in their school system, but what other thoughts do you have that we could put as regular citizens to help you, to help the system, to help this get under control in our communities that don't rob our children and our adults, what thoughts do you have that we could put stop gaps that it doesn't get to your office? Well, government. Government is politics. Politicians don't like to look bad. In the old days, uh, before the advent of email and the web and so forth, if you wanted to express your opinion to a politician about an area you thought was important, such as this, you'd have to write them a letter or make a phone call. It was easier just to write a letter rather than leave a message. Well, nowadays, and I've told some people this uh, in my area where I live on some other political issues unrelated to this, look, uh, you know, old adages uh, uh, stand true. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Everybody, like the mother you're talking about, she needs, or every person who has an interest, needs to s- send an email to 10 friends and say, send this to 10 friends, almost like the old chain letter. But it's so easy right. now because it's electronic. And provide all the names of all the politicians that they, who, who seek their vote and write them and say something's got to be done about this. Something has to be done, and do it every Friday. Fill up their inboxes, okay? Are you kidding? Fill up their inboxes. Really? Really? You think no, that'll do no. it? No, I think it will help, absolutely. Wow. Because Why? Why that, would that help? No. Because without threatening anyone, and I never suggest that, but the, but the communication right. has to say we need – you to address this issue within your power that we have elected you to to um, uh, to use and apply. And until something's done, we're going to re- be reminding you, the thousands of us, every Friday about uh, our concern over this. And we're sorry to bother you about it, 
But that's our job as citizens is to bother our elected officials about things that we feel are detrimental to the wealth, the, the uh, health and, 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 and uh, safety of our society. They don't like that. They don't like that. And then every now and then, in a, a, you know, a street mail letter helps as well. That and, um, um, you know. What do you think? What do you think the media is, is on my side? What do you think the media has to do? What? Where are they falling short on bringing this kind of stuff to the to the forefront? What do you think they need to do? Um, the media, I think needs to um, maybe make an, a, a greater effort to expose and identify for ordinary other people um, that profit factor, the money factor. In other Ooh. words, uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, wow. there was a, the 60-minute the episode that dealt with Purdue, as I recall, established that the the, the incredible amount of money they make knowing that this was a problem on the street and their continued lobbying efforts to ensure that they weren't regulated out of the ability to make that kind of money you have to shine light on things and 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 there's a tipping point there too you know well gee isn't isn't like two billion enough (laughs) you know i mean do you really have to make that much money at the expense of the health and safety of others including young people you know, you got to put the flashlight on them. Make but them, make them pony up and give an answer. You think that's going to happen? You think that's physically possible to do, Timothy? To do what? To to do that, to actually break sure. down that kind of system. Yes. I believe you. It's a squeaky you. wheel. I believe it's a squeaky you. Wheel. I really believe you. Because you and you, you know what I like you know, about what Go ahead. No, no, please. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is um, I didn't mean to jump off the email system real quick. Let me double back on that. I can do that. I have never done that, Timothy. But you know what? I could do that as a normal person sitting in my house, being affected by all that. I actually could do what you're suggesting, which in a small part makes me feel like I'm doing something. I mean, you're out there doing your part, defending, trying to break this system down. Maybe it is a part of everybody's story that we need to do these email chains. It's a good idea. I like it. I like sure. It. It's, it's easy to do. And, you know, we don't have those old smoke-filled conference rooms of the old days where the those in power <laughs> sit there and, you know, like an old movie yeah. I saw about a power company. <laughs> Uh, yeah. They would put up on the screen the picture of old Ms. McGill who had paid her bill, and then they go disconnect. <laughs> but you know we don't have smoke rooms, but we do. But I can it, it, a fly on a wall of that politician's office would hear yeah. this. Darn, these people have got to stop. You know we got to do something to you know to stem the tide of all of this. I, I, every Friday I thread getting all these emails. Yeah, that's the idea. I got gotcha. you. The other thing I want to talk about is that you are a part of the FBI Citizens Academy. Is that something that anyone can get involved in, or do you have to be asked to be join it? And exactly what do they do? I know there's a lot of uh, different chapters. Can you touch on that for me real quick? Sure. Uh, well, back when I was in the Bureau, uh, it there was no academy like this, and it's a, it's been um, – I don't know who got the idea, but it was a good idea. And what happens is is that uh, people who have participated in it or former agents or retired agents or others are asked to recommend people who, um, who they feel would be a good candidate for it. And it's just a, a weekly meeting for about six weeks where agents come uh, and explain uh, concerns to the Bureau, how the Bureau works. Yeah, the application process for people who are interested in becoming a, an employer agent of the bureau, um, and uh, maybe for a couple hours or so on Wednesday nights they have it at a local uh, bank or police department or whatever. And I, I found it to be very enjoyable. I, I you know, I, I 
as a former agent, I didn't necessarily learn anything new, but it was great to meet new people and uh, to discuss issues that are important, make new connections. Um, and it was a great thing. And I urge anyone uh, who was contacted to do it. There's some little, uh, I think they do a, a sort of a, a basic level background check or something just to make sure you're not some bad guy or something. But but it's uh, everyone that I saw in my class uh, really seemed to enjoy it very much. It was very informative. And, uh, and, and that's important, I think, in law enforcement is to get the uh, support and cooperation uh, of the community as opposed to being some you know, behind the curtain, uh, obscure, uh, not uh, entity that people don't know much about. Um, that philosophy or, or approach just seems, which some agencies or other entities see is essential. Uh, you know, is not. You have to bring people in. You have to explain what's going on, and you get their support. And then it's just a. I thought it was a great idea. I think it's good for the bureau. It's good for the community. Good for the country. And it's not about giving you carte blanche to carry a gun or, you know, do out, you know, FBI things. It's more, isn't it more just about talking points, maybe doing an email like you're talking about? It's more about boots on the ground, circling the wagons in our community and making that light connection between everyone that can do their part and, you know, and say, look, this person needs help, that. Isn't it more just a community conversation on how we can keep this issue in the forefront of what's going on in everyone's community? Precisely. No, it's nothing to do with farms or, or handcuffing <laughs> techniques or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. It, exactly. it, it's just it's more of a let us tell us how you can help us help you okay. in terms of issues okay. like crime, national security, uh, terrorism, um, you know, firearms, violence, and so forth. You know, that is just, Tori, uh, it's it's light, uh, it's informative, and uh, everybody there, and they range from bankers to computer guys to uh, ex-military to uh, pilots to whoever. I mean, they seem to enjoy it very, very much, very much. And I think it's a good outlet for people that really have a heart that really sincerely are taking this crisis into their own thoughts and hearts and want to help other people. I think people get burnt out with talking about the misery of it all, and it sounds like it's a group that has uh, reasonable suggestions, some ways that we can help at any level to, to get this under control. And, you know, I've been nominated to go to this, Timothy. It's not my thing. I'll be honest with you. (laughs) I prefer to hear the stories and the media side, but, you know, I'm trying to be recruited to go to that thing, and I I have a feeling that at some point I'm going to break and go, Timothy. I'm going to have to go. You'd you'd love it. Uh, Not to (laughs) – I wouldn't describe it as a social event, but it's very social. It's free. The food's good. Uh, different people contribute the meal for the group each week, and uh, you would enjoy it completely. You really would. Well, and it's amazing because I know the people that are in it, and they're very upstanding people that are really socially trying to make a difference. And it sounds like you are really in the thick of things, Timothy, so I really want to thank you on behalf of all the rest of us for what you're doing out there Stick to it. It sounds like you've got a good handle on how you have to handle the individuals that come to you, and it sounds like you're doing it with compassion, and it sounds like you're doing your job with helping them find a solution rather than a punishment, and that's a big deal nowadays. It really is. I agree, and thank you very much, Jillian. It's been nice to uh, share this hour with you. Yeah. How can they get a hold of you, unfortunately, if they need your uh, services or just talk further on how they can get involved and maybe start that email chain? Do you have an email? Do you have a – what can we do? Yeah, we have a very comprehensive website that's culplaw, K-U-L-P-L-A-W.com, that has uh, 
just a host of resources and also contact information for me and my staff and my associate lawyer and every, everyone where we're located, what we do. Uh, we blog a lot on various topics and uh, try to keep our uh, site constant or current, rather. Well, thank you. And once again, I want to talk about Chasing the Dragon. It's one of those uh, videos that you can bring into high schools, middle schools, it sounds like, and different areas of community that will at least start the conversation. Next week, I want to talk to, we're going to finish up the series with a representative from the legislation side and talk about the systems and what the legislation can do. So thank you for joining us. Um, Look for that series when it comes out. And thanks again, Timothy, for your wise words and, more importantly, the work you're doing out there. Thank you, Julie. You're very welcome. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.